Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 7, The DIY Homestead Kitchen with Chriso Babcock. Chriso is an educator and homesteader in Kingston, New York. He runs Coyote Kitchen Workshops, where he teaches and leads workshops on food preservation, cheese making, and lots of other important kitchen skills. In this episode, we speak with Chriso about the disillusionment of youthful idealism, the importance of healthy fats, and how to shop in a global pandemic. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome, Chriso, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. It's really an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much, AC. Yeah. So, um, would you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, certainly. So, my name is Chriso Babcock, like Chris with an O thrown on at the end there. And I have a small business called Coyote Kitchen Workshops. You can find it at coyotekitchenworkshops.com. And um, basically what I do is I teach a variety of different workshops and also offer private tutoring on topics like fermentation, cooking, uh, other homesteading skills in the, in, inside the house, in the kitchen kind of arena, and in the pantry arena. And then also I teach on gardening and um, kind of community building as well. So yeah, those are the general topics. I think of myself as a homestead, as an educator of homesteading skills, primarily. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that for now, because I'm sure we'll get into it more. Excellent. Um, Yeah, I actually met you, Chriso, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, We were both starting out collectives in the Hudson Valley of New York, and you were starting the Fertile Minds Collective, which um, was a really interesting project. And I, I loved being a part on the periphery of it. And I loved having you to my collective to teach workshops on these skills that you were just mentioning. And I was wondering if you could tell us in your own words about the Fertile Minds Collective. Yeah, totally. So the Fertile Minds Collective. So if you don't mind, maybe I'll actually I'll back up a little bit to yeah. write before the Fertile Minds Collective to kind of put it into perspective. So mm-hmm. I had um, in, my, in, my, in my early college years, I became very politically radical and um, for reasons of love and also for that, I ended up leaving college and kind of doing this um, radical tour around the country of hitchhiking and being on different farms and collectives and communes and stuff and um, protesting. Um, This must be maybe 2008, 2009, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really turned on by this kind of anarchist DIY traveling kid culture that I became acquainted with and a lot of the values and ideals that they held. but I also, I also felt like it was very, it felt very ungrounded. It felt very um, untethered and kind of, um, it seemed like there was a lot of burnout and exhaustion and depression from that lifestyle. And so then shortly after that, I, I got into um, farming and homesteading up in Vermont. And I felt like, again, I was seeing all of these same beautiful ideals and values of um, self-sufficiency. You know, maybe the punks were were calling it autonomy or something, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the farmers were calling it self-sufficiency, but it felt like the same thing. It felt like the same ideal of like this kind of like, uh, we are going to be able to rely on ourselves for our food, for our shelter, for our community needs being met for, um, yeah, for all of the kind of basics of everyday life, like we're gonna, we're going to be self-sufficient. And, um, 
And so these two scenes were both kind of things that I'd experienced, the kind of traveling kid punk scene and the like, um, I don't know, woofing, homesteading, uh, farming, small farm, mm -hmm. small organic farm kind of, kind of scene. And at the end of that season in Vermont doing that homesteading, I had this really strong urge and, and vision to, to kind of combine those two things um, into a project. And so at the end of that homesteading project in Vermont, I, I basically put together this idea for what became the Fertile Minds Collective. And initially I didn't know exactly what it was gonna be called, but I knew that I wanted it to be a non-hierarchical homesteading community. Mm -hmm. And so we did, you know, we, we figured it out. I initially, it was just me. And then I got um, a friend or two in Woodstock into it. And we, we were promoting around Woodstock. We were promoting to, um, to the college that I had used to attend. We were promoting in places like New Paltz, where you had your radical tech collective. Yes. Um, and, and and we found um, we found a farm to host us, basically host host a community, host a radical community for. Uh, well, it ended up being for one season, which I think is um, is very logical. You know, a lot of the people who were part of that community um, were either still in college or they were young and traveling, and so I feel like it was this kind of uh, summer of of blossoming and then kind of casting out in different directions yeah, definitely. and <laughs> yeah yeah totally and so yeah we had this very beautiful community that was um i think at its height maybe 12 or 13 people we were living in an old barn space in the woods that we turned into a living space and people created tent platforms or little huts or um such throughout the woods on the property and we were doing some work trade for the farmer who owned the property. And then we also had our own garden and goats and chickens. And we built an outdoor kitchen and we cooked basically, you know, three meals a day on, on wood fire in an outdoor kitchen with a lot of our own ingredients, um, meals for you know, 12 or 13 people at a time. Mm -hmm. So we were basic, we were doing a lot of, I think the, the main skills that we really all learned as a team were living together, working together yeah, and cooking, cooking together. Um, you know, and, and there was, you know, some gardening and some, and um, some caring for animals and, and crafting and many other things going on. But I think that the big core of the experience that we shared together was, was learning how to, how, yeah, how to live together, how the, how those kind of elements of day-to-day -day life happen. Um, and, and not having electricity in the barn too was a huge, I mean, that was an amazing experience to, to not have, basically have no electricity for, for us, for a whole summer and really see the, the rhythm of the, the new moon and the full moon and, the the light shifting throughout the year yeah. um really yeah it was connected. really it was a it was a it was a really powerful experience yeah i think yeah. everyone who was a part of it even me just visiting it was you know life-changing um and it actually surprised me that it was just one season i feel like it lasted a lot longer in my mind well it's like, actually it's interesting because, I mean, there actually was there was a, a similar project on the same land that did happen again yeah. Okay. Um, not the year after, but but two summers after. So there was, there was a a similar project, a similar project with some of the same people involved, that did yeah. happen a second season, but I I really think of Fertile Minds as being that one that one season. Mm -hmm. It was kind of contained. Yeah, I think you taught me how to slaughter a chicken for the cool. first time. In a really like safe way, or safe in the sense that I felt like held. Uh -huh. Like it was kind of hard for me to take the life of something, but the way you you taught me and the way that we like respected the animal, I feel like 
that was definitely a life-changing experience for me. That's awesome. Thank you for remembering that. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I had had that experience probably the year before up in up in Vermont of of having my uh, my homesteading mentor teach us how to how to slaughter and prepare chicken and um, and I I found it transformative too because I was like wow wow that somehow that changes everything to see yeah to see a live creature go to being a piece of meat in you know by mm. your own actions in your own hands with with your own tools um so simple and almost everybody through history has you know lived with with that um reality but yeah. but we haven't and it's mind blowing when you first when you first do that yeah i remember my first time doing that too and it's so i mean it's kind of scary in a way and and makes you really think about death and life uh, but it's almost like an initiatory experience, but it's like for most people throughout the world, it's, that's just like life, throughout yeah. history. Yeah. Like that's just a very common thing. And, uh, yeah. it shows how disconnected we are in, in Western industrial civilization from the real bare essentials of, of living. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. My, um, my my mentor up in up in Vermont, my homesteading mentor, her name is Penelope. I won't go into too many details for time, but um, but she had a story of one of her of one of her homesteading mentors who you know. So that puts it back even another you know thirty or forty years. And and she said that this woman used to just if she was making dinner, she'd walk out to the coop, she would grab a chicken by the head, throw it over her shoulder, it would be instantly dead. She if she was cooking two chickens, she'd grab a second one, throw it over her shoulder. It'd be instantly dead just from the, the, that one's like expert motion. And then she just walk into the house with the two chickens. It's just like pulling up two onions. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. You also had uh, Skillshares on Sundays there. And I think you also opened up your garden for people to do a pay what you will. Um, They could harvest their own veggies and pay nothing or pay what they thought was fair. Yeah, yeah, and we gave a we gave a lot of vegetables away as well to local food pantry. Um, yeah, we we weren't. Um, the goal was definitely not to to sell things and make money. The goal, I think, was you know if we could grow most of our own food, live extremely cheaply and with a really really high quality of life, and also give back to the community. That was those were those were our big goals. We weren't. We weren't a farm. We weren't even um, a, a, a vegetable stand or something. You know, we were. We weren't. We weren't focused on production of of vegetables. Yeah. So, so that seems like that experience really shaped uh, a lot of what you do now. Um, and I was just wondering, like, to if you could go into a little bit more detail about the kind of workshops and, and educational events that you have now and what your motivations for that are like, why yeah. do you, why do you do it? Totally. Great question. Um, so, well, I'll, I'll kind of give you a sense of some of the workshops I've taught over the years. Um, I've, I've done um, cheese making workshops. I've done sourdough bread baking workshops. I've done a lot of vegetable fermentation workshops. Uh, which is often starting off at at basics of kind of sauerkraut and kimchi kind of style fermentation. Um, I've taught sake making, I've taught uh, miso paste making. Um, I have, and then more recently, um, I've been teaching so, so after, after lockdown or quarantine or COVID or however we want to say it, um, you know, when, with that big shift, I, I kind of um, jumped into Coyote Kitchen pretty, pretty deeply this spring. And it felt like it was kind of my time to, to share a lot of these skills, like an, an important time to share these skills and also a time when uh, more people would would really want it and feel like they, they needed it, you know? Absolutely. And, um, and so at that point I started teaching, uh, well, the, the workshops that I've taught this summer, the, 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 the big one that was kind of COVID 
directly in response to COVID was a, a workshop that I called um, uh, Cheap and Healthy Kitchen Protocols for Uncertain Times. And so that was kind of zooming out. And I, I would like to continue to do more of this, actually. I've done some other workshops kind of similar too, but, but to zoom out rather than focusing on one recipe or one skill um, and to zoom out and be like, hey, like, let's start at, let's start at the beginning here. You know, so that workshop was all about meal planning and stocking a pantry and um, rotating what's in your pantry so that there's less food waste and um, everything's you know, eaten fresher and healthier and um, cleaning out your fridge and reorganizing your fridge so that there's less food waste. And that, that part um, was like such a great tip. Like you, you described um, how you could organize your fridge so that there's the stuff that you need to use right away, the stuff that's not going to go bad anytime soon. And it can really help save food from being wasted. And I've been seeing in some of my friends' kitchens, I've seen little tapes, pieces of tape in their fridge, like use first and <laughs> they're implementing <laughs> awesome. it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I guess what I was feeling a little bit after right at the beginning of quarantine was like kind of that I've, part of me was feeling like, oh, it feels a little silly to teach people about like making sake right now, you know, or something like that. Like, and so there was a kind of a shift in my, in my business focus that is still underway. And I'm still trying to, to figure out kind of, you know, um, what this, what this new, new normal that we're in kind of means for my business. But, but what I, but I, what I felt at that beginning um, was kind of people don't need to know how to do fancy luxurious kitchen stuff right now that they've never done before they need to know how to do the simple everyday stuff that they're doing um, better more efficiently cheaper more more um, safe in terms of, of, of germs coming into the house you know that kind of all of those kind of issues that felt uh, felt especially sharp at the very beginning of lockdown and so yeah the goal for that workshop was like okay we you know let's talk about saving money reducing food waste and shopping safely you know even and and there was another workshop i did actually later in the early summer that was in conjunction with a local um farmers market and that one was all about basically um, how to shop at a shopper's market at, at a farmer's market during COVID, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we, we put that, we put that workshop together, me and the, and the farmer's market put that workshop together to kind of address a number of, of goals and issues. And they were basically, they were thinking, okay, so we're about to open the farmer's market in the next week or two. And everybody is confused and freaked out and we we still want there to be a high attendance and we want people to shop safely and so we kind of we went we we went through all of these goals and I created a workshop for them that I presented so these two these two workshops obviously or maybe not obviously but I should mention after lockdown I went to doing everything virtual and right. that is how it will remain for the foreseeable future will be um you know pretty much entirely virtual um but basically, yeah, so we came up with this workshop together um, that was like, you know, we're going to teach the customers, you know, how to be safe at the market. We're going to tell the customers um, what the vendors are actually going to have, you know, because mm -hmm. this was early spring. Um, and I'd had the experience um, at a different farmer's market that spring. I'm walking by somebody who was walking out and she looked at me and she said, there's nothing, there's nothing there. And I'm like, and I'm thinking like, oh, they're uh, like, I guess COVID is even freakier than I thought. Like, is the farmer's market all sold out? You know, and I get there and of course there's tons of stuff, but there's, there's no tomatoes. Mm. There's no, like, you know, it was early spring, right. I think. So, so <laughs> it was this kind of <laughs> wake up call or like this moment of being like, yeah, people don't necessarily know how to shop at a farmer's market. You know, yeah. like she left feeling like there was yeah. nothing there. 
I left with like a hundred dollars worth of like honey and bread and um, root vegetables and, you know, like all sorts of stuff that's gonna, it's like, well, yeah, there aren't that many greens yet. There aren't, you know, there's not like, you know, late summer and late fall ingredients, but I wasn't expecting there to be, you know, cause, cause I'm used to shopping at a right. farmer's market. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting how that is like connected to, uh, also <laughs> to, uh, ha- preparing food too. Like people don't realize like what living seasonally means, <laughs> but another thing that interested me about, uh, this, the lockdown was, was, yeah, how, people didn't really know how to shop. And I feel kind of lucky that my mom didn't have very much money for a while. And we would go to the store like once Mm. a month Mm -hmm. and get Mm -hmm. everything, you know, like dried beans, rice, the materials that wouldn't go bad Mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I I grew up, you know, kind of uh, learning how to (laughs) shop that way. And then people now, I mean, it's, it's hard to go to the store. Like apparently a lot of people go to the store like every other day or something and get just a couple things. But with the lockdown, it was, uh, you know, more of a risk to go to the store. There was less at the store. You had to go, you know, less mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely been eye opening for a lot of people. And I think it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, also, you know, I was, I was also in food service at the beginning of this pandemic and so that all closed right away. But the other thing, you know, even besides people not necessarily knowing how to shop in, in bulk and, and have, a, have a pantry that they're actually using on a regular basis and all these things, um, I think there's also just the element that a lot of people, um, they eat out all the time. Yeah, you know, that's be- true too, yeah. Before, before quarantine, at least, like, or they eat at work you know, which is, which is a little different, you know, like, um, or some combination of, of those two, but like, you know, I don't, I didn't, I definitely am not a frequent, I was not a frequent restaurant goer before this, but for me, I was working in food service. So there was at least all of those shifts. I was getting a meal at work as part of work, you know, so that's, that's a number of meals a week that I don't have to think about. And often on the way to work, you know, if I'm getting lunch, maybe I was getting a sandwich somewhere on the way to work. So there's, so there's those, those, a good chunk of the week where I wasn't really having to, to think that much about what I was preparing or cooking for myself. Um, because maybe it was just breakfast and then I was out the door and I'm, and I'm off all day, you know? Um, so yeah. yeah. Lots of what, are, what are your tips for folks who are transitioning um, and have been transitioning from having a lot of their meals taken care of from restaurants or, um, work or things like that. And like, what do you recommend for them when they go to the store? That's a great question. Um, well, I think, I think maybe the starting point for me when I would, if I would be talking to someone about that, um, and I do also do private tutoring on this, on this sort of topic of, of meal planning and such. Um, but my first question is for people is usually like, what do you like to eat? What do you, what are you actually going to cook and eat for yourself? You know, let's come up with some strategies. Um, I mean, I think some strategies that really work for almost everybody. Um, I think that, you know, once a week making a big pot of rice or a big pot of beans or, or other legumes could be chickpeas or black beans or, uh, lentils, but, but, um, you know, having, having bulk beans or rice already cooked at the beginning of the week. And I like to, I like to soak, um, grain, both grains and and beans before cooking as well. So, um, but yeah, to have, and then you have, uh, then you have these ingredients that are kind of mostly ready to go. They're extremely cheap they can fill out almost any meal. So rather than having, um, you know, um, just say in the morning, maybe I would make a, um, you know, a little vegetable stir fry of whatever I have, vegetable saute, whatever, and, um, and an egg. But if you have also beans and rice already cooked in the fridge, then you have a scoop of rice, you have a scoop of beans, you have the egg, you have the vegetables, and all of a sudden 
it's like um it's like a full plate with all this diversity of different stuff and ferments on there yeah yeah totally and um you know and then um or or you know likewise it's like you're making um yeah just to, to have to have these to have at least a few dishes that are and i like to keep them relatively neutral so it's like rather than making like a big pot of chili um and then like you feel like you have to eat that same chili all week sure. um, although that's great too you know i think there's a time and a place and i think you could also do both you know and again it depends how many people are in your household and how many or, meals you're eating at home for most of us it's a lot right now but mm-hmm. um or you could but, freeze some of the chili for two weeks yeah away, you know yeah totally you can you can you can always do that too but um but to have like some relatively simple ingredients that are that are pre-prepared like okay here's a pot of black beans relatively simple not not spiced not crazy but this can be something that I'm going to add to a soup or heat up and and put some meat on top of or some sour cream on top of or squeeze a lime on top of Mm -hmm. or you know um and so like having these um I mean it almost to me it feels like and and this is kind of where I've gotten some of this some of my my home um kitchen organization skills is from working in food is like um okay so you know if the if the if the kitchen is always putting together these same dishes then inevitably what they have back there is all of all the ingredients mostly prepared for most of these dishes you know and it's like okay we're making a plate of nachos we'll get out the beans get out the get out the lettuce that's already cut, get out, you know, and it's like, and it all comes together extremely quickly. And, and so I like to have, have things like that, that are, that are simple, but, but pre-prepared and kind of, and flexible and ready to go. And I also, um, and I do also love to make like a, you know, a big soup or a big stew or, or um, a big tray of roasted vegetables or something like that. Yeah. Um, but my other advice for people always is like, you know, what are you actually going to eat? How do you like to eat? Um, for some people, it's, it might be more practical, especially, you know, in the summer or um, if they're really busy to have like um, meals that require less cooking, you know, like maybe, maybe I'm talking to someone and they're like, yeah, I don't really love to cook. And I, and I eat pretty lightly usually for lunch. And I'm like, okay, so let's come up with, like a way where you could have everything that you need to make yourself an awesome salad with like, you know, some nuts or chunks of already roasted veggies or, or homemade dressing or whatever, like whatever it is that you are actually going to eat and, and prepare for yourself. Let's make that really easy for you. Cause, um, yeah, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes wary of this idea that like, you know, I don't think that we're going to, that everybody is going to become a home cook, you know? Mm-hmm. I think some people love it. Some people um, enjoy it, but but it's not their favorite thing or they're super busy. And other people, it's really hard for them to do much home cooking at all. And just, you know, temperament and experience and skill level. And it's like, um, okay, so... I, I think a lot of it for me is like actually tailoring it to what, what people are actually going to take advantage of. Like I could teach a thousand people how to make cheese in their own kitchen. How many of those people, especially right now with the stress of the world and the stress of shopping are, are going to be excited to make homemade cheese in their own kitchen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like the, the most important um, skill or, or focus right now. So that's why I've kind of zoomed out a little bit more to um, to kind of trying to tailor it more to what people are telling me that their their issues or their or their hopes are for their kitchen. You know, maybe maybe it's enough for maybe for one person it's enough to say, oh great, so here's five simple meals that you really like. Let's make sure that you let's like let's put this all let's organize this in such a way that you know when you go to the store that you get X, Y, and Z every time. And you always have those in your kitchen so that at the very least you can always make yourself this meal. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. 
And so speaking of adapting your skills from making cheese or sake to more general um, cooking tips and food, some food preservation, like meta stuff, how has um, transitioning from in-person teaching to online learning, how, what has that been like for you? Um, I've actually, I've actually really enjoyed the process of, so, so what I've been doing is I've been doing mostly through zoom, um, uh, presentations, which I, which are essentially like a PowerPoint. I use a different program, program called Canva, which is great to use, uh, really easy to use. Um, it's, um, online subscription kind of very simple, um, PowerPoint-esque program. And I can, can put Canva in the show notes for folks. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's. Cool. I find it extremely useful to make flyers for events, to make presentations for Zoom events. Um, yeah, you can use I'm, it to make. We, we made our album, my album cover with it. It's very. Oh, it's easy awesome and useful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's super. It's it's very easy to have a very professional, high quality look, and also, um, you know, you can use templates and formats, but also alter them and. It's easy to have a lot of control and make something look nice pretty quickly. So what I've been doing um, since since lockdown is I've been basically creating these um, long, detailed, um, designed presentations and then presenting them through Zoom for for people. Um, well, more specifically, most of the workshops that I do are for organizations. And so we're, I'm, I'm really, I'm working for the organization to, 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 to come in and present something to their following, you know? So if it's a farmer's market, it, it, you know, it could be about shopping at the farmer's market, like that workshop mm-hmm. I was talking about, or um, maybe a non-for-profit or, a, or um, some sort of food business. And so, uh, I mean, I think what I what I have enjoyed about it is I have enjoyed creating and presenting these 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 presentations on on stuff. I think that that has been has been really interesting and and great learning experience. And um, it's actually led towards a a different job, which I'm just getting into now, which is with Cornell Cooperative Extension. Um, and uh, but I should be teaching a virtual cooking class for them uh, once a month for the next year through um, through a grant they have. Um, so so it's been a great skills learning kind of of how to do it online. Mm-hmm. I think that the big challenge for me is um, I am not used to having so much of my work life in front of a computer. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that is a huge transition for me. And um, I would say, I would say that's the biggest one. And, you know, I also, I love, I love the social aspect of what I do. And so that is a little challenging too. And then I guess, you know, the other thing is just the transition really for me is like every all of these workshops that i've done in the past have been very hands-on they've been they've been either hands-on or they're you know in real time me doing something hands-on and and showing how to do it but but quite often everybody's doing it you know if we're making sauerkraut everybody's slicing and packing jars and i'm talking through the process as we do it not so covid friendly yeah totally so (laughs) So that's a huge, you know, so that's a huge shift. Um, and yeah, I can say it, it's, it's been challenging. I think um, in some ways, I think the, the online presentation format is really good. Um, for one thing, it, it allows me to repeat these presentations. Um, and it allows me to fine tune it in a way, you know, before showing it that gives me a lot of control over what I'm showing. Um, but it's, it's a hugely different, it's a hugely different process than it was before, before quarantine. Yeah. 
that's uh it's definitely been a big change for everybody mm-hmm. um I, I was interested maybe a little bit in uh those particular things that you do the the sake and the mead and uh pickles and ferments and so on like what are some of your favorite uh recipes to to make for yourself yeah totally um well let's see i'll start with um one of my one of my favorite pickles um or you know lacto lacto fermented vegetables this is a really easy recipe um so the at the simplest when i'm doing lacto fermentation i pretty much use two tablespoons of salt per quart of water um good quality uh water it doesn't necessarily have to be filtered but you do want to make sure there's no chlorine um and again good quality salt ideally you know non iodized and with some of the minerals still in there um un- unrefined you know and so basically the the very basics of lacto fermentation I guess I'll mention just really quickly um basically there's many types of pickling. Pickling can mean so many things. And often in the modern era, it means uh, vinegar pickling. And I have no problem with vinegar pickling. It definitely has its place. It's a very um, amazing way to preserve things. But um, pickling vegetables in vinegar is not really fermenting them. It's more like preserving them in something that has been created by fermentation. You know, the vinegar is created through fermentation. But basically, it's a very strong acidic brine. You just put the vegetables into and they soak, they soak some of it up and it preserves them. So lacto-fermentation is just salt water at its simplest. Just salt water, vegetables, few days at room temperature, and then into a cooler space. And so, so that's always been something that I love to teach um, because it's so simple. It's um, it's a great starting place for fermentation, um, and really for a lot of a lot of cooking. I think it's I think it's very cool to be able to make your own condiments and sides and such, and and probiotics. So one of my favorite things to do in this way is um, daikon, and daikon is actually you know speaking of those those spring veggies or there's nothing here at the farmers market. You know daikon is one of those early spring vegetables. Um, and it pickles amazingly. It's, it, it, it's so crunchy and crispy mm. that it is able to maintain that crunch and crisp mm. through its fermentation. Yeah, so here's cool. a recipe, super, super easy, but I'll start with this one. Uh, one quart of water, two tablespoons of unrefined salt, and you're going to slice up uh, daikon into whatever sort of um texture shape format you want they could be crinkle cut they could be little rods they could be circles and you're gonna toss them in there and make sure it's fully submerged so that all of the vegetable material is is fully under the salt water you can press down Mm -hmm. the top with something if you need to give it um a few days um somewhere between probably two and four days at room temperature on the counter and then goes to the fridge can eat it within a week or two weeks or save it for months and months and months. So this is a, this is a process really, this is a basic vegetable fermentation technique that you can use for all sorts of vegetables. I'm actually thinking to try it with a bunch of my green tomatoes. Oh yeah. I've done that. Be- I've done that before. It's really, uh-huh. really good. The last batch I did more. Uh-huh. Though. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I let it go too long. Uh, before putting in the yeah the i've always i've always found that like the um the step of of um of kind of that first active fermentation burst really doesn't take that long i i usually just give it a few yeah. days and but the nice thing about lacto fermentation is it is very safe and if something goes wrong it's usually extremely obvious um yeah <laughs> like a whole bunch of yeah exactly <laughs> it's like okay that's that's bad you know like and and so what i always try to tell people is like you know um smell it it should smell like it should have that like acidic zingy tangy pickly smell it shouldn't smell like something is rotting or moldy and and um you know and and 
quite quite often well I should, yeah but that's a that's a good that's a good one i also love that same recipe with watermelon rind um that's oh, one wow. of my favorites um and it's another you know texture wise it's another one that's kind of similar yeah. to the daikon it's it's like it's very crunchy crispy and it and it holds that that crunch and crisp um the yeah, and, and just just so everyone knows who isn't familiar with the daikon, it's just like a, a radish. It's a big radish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a it's like a long white um, Japanese radish. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited and, to pickle some yeah. beets. Oh, cool! Got yeah. a bunch of beets. Actually, I, I started it and they they molded too. I left them for a week. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> I have to get better at uh at making sure they don't go too long. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Totally. The but other thing again, I did was I added some of the juice from a previous batch and I think that like jump started it too much. Uh huh. So do, do you ever do that or is that not a good idea? Well, so I think, you know, with all these things, there's so many different opinions and there's so many like house recipes and stuff. What I have read most commonly is that uh, you shouldn't use the start. You shouldn't use the, an old lacto ferment to start a new lacto ferment because the stage of the fermentation is different. Ah, okay. Um, so that's another thing I'm doing wrong. <laughs> but um, so like the, the, the kind of basic lacto-fermentation recipe in nourishing traditions is, is um, this, you know, this salt water recipe that I'm talking about. But the other option with, with lacto-fermentation is always to add a little bit of whey um oh which, which i don't usually i don't actually usually do but supposedly if you add even a little teeny bit of whey like a teaspoon of whey um then that makes it um extremely extremely like unlikely that it's going to mold or or go go yeah. bad in that first few days um but i find honestly like if i if everything if you're working with super clean ingredients or, or materi materials, you know, um, if the jars are, and I don't sterilize my jars if I'm, if I'm lacto-fermenting, you know, I'll clean them with really hot soapy water. I'll fill them with clean water. I'll, you know, the vegetables should be pretty clean, but again, you don't have to be crazy about it. But, um, but my experience has always been that um, usually if, if, all of the solids are are really covered at the top. Um, you you won't and and you don't leave it for too long, obviously. Or if it's not too, the other thing too, you know, it could be that maybe they're in a maybe they're in an area where it's actually hot enough in your house in that area where they're where they're going a little faster than you expect, you know. Um, oh, Chris, but, just, yeah. just real quick, can you um, tell us what nourishing traditions is? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. So Nourishing Traditions is a, is a classic cookbook um, is by Sally Fallon. And it was a big part of, of my learning process. It's kind of a um, Weston Price style um, cookbook. And so a lot, of, a lot of my background in teaching nutrition is kind of through a Weston Price lens. I, I actually, one of my big doorways into teaching nutrition or the, the passion of, of around nutrition was actually a workshop that I did with Sally Fallon many, many years ago. Uh, it was a, a, a day and a half long PowerPoint. I think it was at a NOFA conference, a, a Northeastern Organic Farmer Farming Association conference. Cool. And so I saw this this, you know, this woman who's very, very famous for her role in the, in kind of the health, healthy food um, movement. Um, although there's many different types of that movement, some of which conflict with each other. Um, she gave this mind blowing presentation and it answered a lot of the questions that I had been having as a homesteader and as a farmer about food. So, you know, like you were saying, Isaac, like, um, a lot of a lot of my thoughts around this stuff is kind of I, I do get meta with it, you know. And so, something that that I was thinking about a lot um, in that homesteading farming period early on for me was like, how did people do this? Like, I couldn't, you know. Once I actually was starting to farm, I couldn't wrap my head around, you know, how would someone in the Northeast actually produce 
all of the things that they need to live through the winter and the year, you know? Well, and oh, we live next ahead. to some Amish folks. <laughs> I think yeah. it's having 12 kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a cow. <laughs> uh-huh. Totally. But that's a great point. So that, that cow, you know, butter, you know, and like, um, and the big one for me that was really mind blowing, um, was lard. You know? Yeah. Um, because yes. a big thing for me was like, okay, like I get how you could grow all your own vegetables. I get how you could grow, ah, you know, maybe a few hundred pounds of dry beans. And, but really it's like, I was, you know, one thing that, that boggled me for years was like, how do you have enough fat to, how do you have enough oil to even, to even just saute something 365 days a year? And, you know, without all of these light golden liquid oils that we're so used to, everybody was using butter and lard and maybe tallow yeah. or, or, um, or schmaltz or these other animal fats, you know? And I think that, that was a big revelation for me. And that was something I really got out of that presentation those many years ago was like, and that's, and that's really the core of Weston price style nutrition is what did people used to eat? And, you know, the reality is that those light golden liquid oils that we take for granted as our basic cooking oils other than olive oil those oils did not exist before like 80 years ago 80 90 100 years ago like those are brand new those are factory products um and i am also totally sure that you know the the folks who settled the the united states they were not hauling big glass and metal tins of olive oil around with them. They were using lard. They were using animal fat. They were using large amounts of animal fat. And in every culture around the world, um, fat was prized. Saturated fat, which has such a bad name in our current society. You know, it's, well, there's starting to see some shifts in that, but for so many years, um, you know, the, the party line with nutrition of the USDA and, and others has been saturated fat is bad uh, or even fat in general is bad. Um, and it makes you fat, which it doesn't, you know? So, so there's, for me, for me, Western price style nutrition was like this window opening where I was like, Oh, like, this is how, like, you know, remove yourself from like all of the, the confusing multiple multiple different stories and angles and things that we're told about nutrition every day and the question that i always ask myself and this is actually kind of a very michael pollan-esque question but the question i ask myself is like did this did this product or ingredient exist a hundred years ago and if so that's a good thing you know like um i i would much prefer butter to to something like margarine, um, oh, yeah. you know, whole grains to, to something that's been um, bleached and bromated and, and um, you know, pumped up with uh, synthetic vitamins and, and minerals that aren't necessarily in the, in the right form to even be absorbed by the body. Yeah, then you um, have canola oil. <laughs> yeah. What is up with canola oil? Well, canola oil is one of those light, light golden oils. And the the unfortunate um i'm going to say truth because you know i i think that this is fairly unarguable um although it's again you know we still have this party line that canola oil is, is healthier than butter in some way you know uh i think that will eventually change hopefully with 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 the if rationality returns to the world but um but you know basically the way that these products are created, if you actually look at the factory flow chart of how these products are created, that to me is a great thing. So that's another question I ask myself. The two, two of the questions are, did this exist before 100 years ago? And how is this actually made? Can I find a video of it being made in a factory on YouTube? Can I, or can I find a, a factory flow chart from, you know, from somewhere online? And and with these light golden brown oils, canola 
um, or light golden oils, you know, canola included. Um, basically, what the what the actual factory process involves is um, they all of the, these seeds are crushed or or heated or both at often super high temperatures that cause the oil to go rancid before it even leaves the factory. And if you look at the flow charts, there's steps in the factory processing for descenting, resenting, decoloring, recoloring. Um, often wow. there's often there's other there's even crazier things. Often there's hexane solutions that are being run through. Sometimes there are, um, um, you know, ultra high heat processes going on, or they're being spun in a nickel catalyst reactor. Or, it's like when you really look at some of these flat factory flowcharts, you're like, oh, that's not food. And, right, and the right. reason that yeah. it doesn't have a shelf life is because it's already bad. And so <laughs> yeah. that's, that's something I like to think too, is like if you look at something and it has a shelf life of like 10 years or, or no shelf life whatsoever, that's probably because it's already rancid. Yeah. So what do you think about peanut oil? That's something that I use instead of canola oil because you can get it, you can get a gallon of it pretty easy and it's from a peanuts, which have a lot of oil in them already. Yeah. Corn yeah. oil or something. Um, let's see. You know, I don't have the, I don't have it right at the tip of my brain. I would say it's definitely much better than any of the, you know, canola, corn, soy oils are probably the worst. Um, yeah. But if someone doesn't have access to like a lot of lard or tallow or right. such or wants to be uh, vegan, I think mm -hmm. like coconut oil seems like a good one and peanut oil. Yeah, mm -hmm. coconut oil is a great one. I would say um, – oh, I was just thinking of another one, but it's not my mind. Um, well, coconut and olive are great. Um, sunflower oil is, is oh, yeah. also really nice. Um, and – Let's see. Um, well, you know, actually, interestingly, nutritionally, um, palm oil is actually pretty good, but there's a lot of sustainability issues right. there with, with palm oil. Um, but, um, and, and peanut, I think, is, is good as well. I don't, I, it's not one that I frequently use, but, um, but that's just a matter of habit. You know, I just, I never, I never got into well, using it. I got into a deep frying phase here a couple weeks ah, ago. Ah, <laughs> nice, cool. That's great for the fall. We had a hangering for chicken uh -huh. wings. Yeah, and, and we had the uh, green tomatoes and mm. <laughs> apple fritters. Oh, so. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> a little guilty pleasure, but yeah. uh, it was, use, use peanut oil. With all, like, there's so many diet fads and there's people that recommend, oh, go margarine, go vegan, you know, what does it look like for you from your nutritional background and standpoint um, to have a healthy diet? Can you describe some foods and some general? Yeah. Is, is there a healthy things? diet? Is there a healthy diet? Is it all individual? <laughs> you know, like what, what is your take? Um, what works well, my take is, so my take is largely, is largely Western price, but it's also been softened over the years by, you know, the reality of what's, and maybe what's, yeah. Oh. Take a second to define what Weston Price yeah. diet looks like. For yeah, so, so basically, well, so, so I, and I'll give kind of a soft Weston Price because it, it goes into all sorts of details and you can be extremely strict with some of this stuff. The, the, the real core of, of Weston Price is that um, cultures around the world ate um, a lot of the same things, also many, many different things in different parts of the world, but there's patterns that we can look at that are, that are similar. And some of those patterns include um, most cultures, almost, almost all the cultures had access to some sort of grain or bean. They were always soaked um, and sometimes sprouted as well before being prepared. They were never just cooked straight from dry. Um, Even rice and even, yeah, even rice, even, yeah, black beans, lentils, all those things, they're always soaked for usually eight to 10 to 12 hours, soaked overnight the night before. Um, and that's because if you think about it, like these seeds, 
they are designed to be eaten. They're designed to be eaten and to pass intact through your system so that they can move somewhere else and start a new plant. Um, so really, you know, with, with the case of, you know, like a, a goat or a cow or something, these, these creatures, they're fermenting their grains inside their body. We don't have that luxury. So early humans figured this out all, all over the world in every culture that um, grains and legumes really need to be the, the, the process of breaking down grains and legumes to make them fully nutritious happens before they enter our body. It's so, so interesting how cultures knew to do that so long ago, but I wasn't raised with that practice. Totally. And I don't, once I yeah. started doing it, because you taught me, taught me how to uh -huh. do it, it really made a difference in my digestion and my ability to yeah, incorporate the nutrients of the food. And I just wonder how that happened. Like, how did we lose that tidbit? I don't know. Just yeah. You know, well, it's, it's really interesting. Like, um, we've been losing tidbits for so long, you know, like even when, um, uh, so forgive me if, if any of the details of this story are not perfect because it's been a while, but basically the gist of it is when Europeans first came to um, Central and South America and they discovered corn, they brought it back to Europe. They forgot one of the most important things about processing corn or they just never learned it because they weren't asking any questions. They were just, you know, taking. And the South American culture, Central American, South American and North American cultures that used corn, they had all realized that to make corn fully uh, nutritionally accessible, it needs to be um, not only soaked beforehand, but it needs to be soaked with a little bit of lime or, or ash. Um, and this is, um, this is a process that, um, that makes it fully accessible. And so they were able to use this as their staple grain with no nutritional side effects. And because they were because they were properly preparing the grains um, with um, yeah with with you know with the with additions and, and soaking of, of and then when corn is prepared without that and when that's the basis of the diet it leads to a nutrient deficiency which causes pellagra which is a disease that can be really devastating so when corn was taken back to Europe and started to be used to kind of feed the masses there was these mass outbreaks of pellagra wow. because they had, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, cool. Here's this new vegetable or, you know, new grain, but, but the, but the skill of preparing it was never transferred, was never transferred back. And um, so that's just one example, but, um, but to, to zoom back to, um, you know, the, the kind of real basics of Weston price. So we have, Soaking and so properly properly preparing grains and beans before consuming them. We have um, a real focus on on if not animal fats, at least um, simple whole saturated fats. Like uh, coconut would be a, a vegetable example. Yeah. Um, coconut or lard would be a good animal example, um, and. There is also an emphasis on really every culture um, had every culture used fermentation to both preserve and enliven their food. So there's that's also a, a common thread is that um, cultures, you know, anytime there was a meal that was that was predominantly heavily cooked or cooked for a long time, there was almost always a an enzyme add an enzyme or probiotic kind of added back to it at the serving stage. So, you know, maybe it's that little dollop of sour cream that goes on top of the borscht soup, or maybe it's a little bit of um, a slaw that goes on top of, um, you know, a piece of heavily cooked meat. Um, when we've cooked all the enzymes out of something and all the probiotics out of something, it's really nice to have a side that gives us some of those enzymes back for digestion. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, the other, the other principle or, you know, some of the other main things in, in the Western price mindset is just 
avoiding the the products of of modern industrial food culture you know so that means it means um white sugar white flour um it means all of those um twinkies yeah yeah and all of those um all of those light golden oils that we were talking about um it means um avoiding as much as possible it means avoiding you know the added um preservatives and flavor enhancing um artificial colors and all of these things that are added um yeah, food and again you products. know products that sorry to interrupt but yeah that you said it like they're not food they're food products yeah exactly and food like substances mm-hmm, exactly yeah so you know i think it's um so my my own you know actual day-to-day cooking style has definitely softened quite a bit i'm not nearly as strict as I used to be, but these are all things that I, at the very least, aim for. You know, am I am I soaking um, all of my beans and grains before I cook them? Not always. Maybe sometimes I'm in a rush, or you know, maybe I'm at a, a friend's house who just made a pot of rice, and and that, you know, I'm not going to say no. I can't eat that rice. Like you know, it's like. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think uh, you know. I think these are things that are worth they're worth thinking about and i think a great starting point is asking yourself like um you know is this a meal that could have existed a hundred years ago or 200 years ago um and and or 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 from a different perspective maybe asking yourself when you look at a product you know i think my my general perspective is that i just i think that people get so confused and so overwhelmed by all of the different information often conflicting information we're getting about food and and even like the idea of focusing on how many calories you're eating every day Uh, you know not to say that that's not a great thing to focus on for some people for certain situations but you know comparing calories on two different products in the store or even comparing the ingredient list can you know can be a challenging thing that might not really lead you to the best product. I think what I like to do is I like to, you know, if I'm going into a store, I try to look for the simplest, um, least refined um, ingredients that I can. And that's a big skill that a lot of people don't have. It's a simple thing, just reading the ingredients. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And you know, it's also, it's also very misleading because there's a lot that they can get away with yeah, in those ingredient yeah. panels. There's, yeah. Well, we're nearing the uh, close of the interview. Um, so we were wondering, uh, you know, where can we, where can people reach you and find out about your workshops? And uh, what are you excited about for the future? Cool. Um, so you can find me at my website. Um, I am also on Instagram, um, coyotekitchenworkshops.com is my website. And there's a uh, way to contact me from there if you are interested in working with me as an organization or as an individual or for private tutoring or homeschooling or anything like that. And um, Let's see, what am I excited about? Recently, I have been, um, I have been kind of excited for, for the winter in certain ways. Um, And that kind of cozy interior time that's coming. And I'm, I'm looking forward to making a lot of, of cozy, comforting, stress relieving meals. And, um, in enjoying that kind of feeling of abundance that is a, it's different than summer abundance, you know, that yeah, the yeah. winter, winter abundance of like a big pot of, of uh, something filling and, and flavorful yeah. and um, fatty kind of just bubbling on the stove, ready to be ready, ready for a little bowl of it whenever you need it. And squash. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, all those baked, all those baked vegetables. 
Mm-hmm. We've been we've been already on the uh, pumpkin pie train. Nice. We already made two. Very very mm-hmm. nice. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It was really interesting, super fun. I feel like we could definitely do this again sometime and uh, learn a lot from you about nutrition and food and preserving. And we didn't even talk about gardening, but you're yeah. a wealth of knowledge <laughs> in that subject too. So thank you, Chriso. You're amazing. And we look forward to all the amazing work that you're going to continue to do. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And thank you for putting this podcast together. I'm really excited to continue listening and see, see where you guys go with it. Thanks. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. All right. We'll log off now and talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.